and welcome to the Dagger Report, the new podcast you know, collaboration between me, I'm Mike Prada from BoldsForever.com. Joining me is my co-host, Kyle Weedot from TruthAboutIt.net. Kyle, how you doing? I'm doing well, Mike. How you doing? Doing okay. Uh, we're recording this on uh, October 26th, so the Redskins are playing in oh, a few hours. But we're here to talk about the Wizards, um, and we have a we have a guest. We have a number of guests on this show today. We're going to talk to Mark Riggs, aka Rook 6980, about the new Flip Saunders' Hawk offense and his defense, and how the Wizards are fitting into that as he's watched this preseason. And we're going to talk to Rob Mahoney from the Two Man Game, uh, top notch Dallas Mavericks blog on the ESPN True Network as the Wizards prepare to meet the Mavericks tomorrow at 8.30. But our first guest uh, on the show today is Rashad Mobley, who writes for HoopsAddict.com. He's been credentialed for a year. Rashad, welcome to the show. Thank you. How's it going, fellas? All good. All good. Pick the wrong year to start having having Wizards credentials, huh? Yeah, it it, it was tough. But uh, (laughs) I will say you all... Missed out on the funny man at Tapscott press conferences. So, Flip Saunders has a lot to live up to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it definitely kind of, would have been nice to see just what uh, environment like that is. The team that just keeps on losing, and it's like there's nothing they can do about it. And, you know, I'm knocking on wood right now. It's definitely not going to be like that this year now that um, Mike and I have some credentials to cover the team as well. Well, the advantage that Flip Saunders has that neither Eddie Jordan nor Ed Tapscott has was that Flip Saunders knows no matter what, he's going to be there. At the end of the season, he's going to be there. They lose 17 games or they lose the first 10 out of 11 like happened to Eddie Jordan, he's going to be there. So it'll be a little different than it was with the prior two coaches. Yeah. What was your fi- what was your favorite? You know, I talked to Ed a little bit during camp, you know, but and you know, he struck me as a really interesting guy. What's your favorite? You know, we used to make fun of his mixed metaphors and his complicated words, and you know, he just throw out a word, you know, in a press conference or you know, in in an interview where you're like, oh, well, what does that mean? What's your favorite Tap Scottism? This is what I'm curious about. Well, to me, there was two things. There was always the quote-unquote SAT words he would throw out, you know, just to let you know I'm a coach and I work for the NBA, but I'm, a, I'm an attorney too and I can't talk that way. And then he always seemed, he was very accessible, always accessible. Um, and I think that's because he's worked in the organization at various points, not just in the Wizards organization, but with Charlotte and the Knicks. He was very, very accessible, and that was very, very helpful. Um, if you needed him after the press conference, he would say, when do you need me? And I can almost guarantee Flip Saunders won't be like that. He doesn't have to. He's an established coach, and he's a veteran, and he's going to make you come to him, whereas Ed Tapscott was the complete opposite. And as somebody who was covering the team for the first time, I totally appreciated that, as did Mike Jones. And at that time, Ivan Carter, they they always could talk to him, and that's what you want when you're trying to write. Yeah, that sounds like kind of funny. It's like I imagine no other coach in the NBA last year was probably as accessible as Ed Tapscott, you know. And so, you know, maybe that's why he wasn't made for the job. But, hey, he he kind of bit the bullet for the team and just kind of guided the, you know, guided them through a rough stretch, which was pretty much inevitable. So and maybe I don't know if we pat him on the back for his efforts or we say, you know, what do we say to that? Well, I do know he, he may not have been the perfect 
coach. He may not have been, you know, great at that, but he was a good guy. And, you know, I think it certainly says something that he took one for the team like that. There's a no-win situation right there. But enough tap, Scott. Let's get into this season. And, of course, the big news with the Wizards the last few weeks is that the diagnosis came in on Antoine Jameson's shoulder, and he's going to miss about uh, three to five weeks. I guess it's now about four four weeks from this date. Um, and I guess I want to ask you, Rashad, that leaves an opening in the starting lineup. Who do you think should fill it? Who do I think should fill it? It would be Alberto. Who do I think is going to fill it? It's going to be Blatch. Um, I, I just see that you have to reward Alberto for how he played. Um, he's, he's not an offensive guy. You're not going to replace the about 19-9 and nine that Jamison had. But just from a defensive standpoint, from a hustle standpoint, you want to start Alberto. I just, I, I have a feeling that Blotch is going to start because Flip is going to be looking at things from an offensive standpoint, and I just think that Blotch does the kind of offense that he plays, particularly with the starters, it, it's going to throw off this team. Um, so Alberto is who I'd like to see, but I, I pretty much think we're going to go with Blotch. Well, yeah, it seems uh, it's interesting you say that because it seems like what. Flip has been saying so far is that, you know, I'm going to start Oberto at the four. Let's get Andre used to coming off the bench because that's that's going to be his role all year. And then, you know, the concern is like, okay, who who plays offense after Cron, Butler, and Gilbert Arenas? Well, maybe we start Mike James at the two for the time being. See how that Mike works. Miller, Mike Miller, I said is what Mike, you mean. <laughs> Mike James, yeah, not no, do not start him. Definitely not. Um, yeah, but Mike Miller, you know, maybe he helps out more with the offense, takes pressure off Karan and Gilbert. Here's a question I want to ask both of you. It's interesting, Rashad, you say let's reward Oberto for his good preseason. What about awarding Blatch for his good preseason? I, I don't mean that in a sarcastic way. I mean, Blatch, but, you know, Blatch certainly had his mental errors at times, and he certainly shot a lot of jumpers, but... The dude averaged something like 18 and 11 per 36 minutes. You know, he was one of the teams, you know, he was pretty, he was very, he was rebounding extremely well. Uh, our guy B. Woods, XYZ, did a, a, a new analysis. He tracked some of the defensive stats and found that Blatch was, you know, for, contesting a lot of shots and forcing a lot of turnovers. Blatch seemed to have a pretty good preseason to me. I don't know what you guys, but, you know, I, I thought Blatch played very well this preseason. I, th- I thought he played excellent. I think that. From media day, he impressed me with how serious he was. And a lot of times when you see players say that, you think it's just going to be lip service. But then, when I, well, first of all, going back to Summer League when he showed up, that was just completely surprising to me. And then continuing on media day, and then when I saw him play, he was very, very serious, very focused on trying to make the right play. Unfortunately, he would still have these lulls where he would fall into the old Andre and Mm-hmm. You know that that's the the inconsistency inconsistency that you worry about with him that you never have to worry about with Jamison. You know what you're going to get, and you know. So I, I worry if he's thrust into a starting role or even a prominent role, the more minutes he plays, are we going to see that kind of slippage? So that's my only concern. But mm-hmm. up to this point, he had an excellent preseason. He seems focused. I still want him to play in the post a little more, especially now with Jamison out. But you know, what are you going to do? I mean, personally, now, let's I'm, talk about the, uh, the resident Blatch hater talk now. <laughs> I, I'm only slightly, guys. Only slightly. I'm I'm going to cite the mantra that we've been hearing is that it's just the preseason. 
I mean, Andre, yeah, he's had a decent preseason, but honestly he hasn't shown us anything that we didn't already know he could do. I mean, the guy can score. He has a nice touch on his jumper. And you know, last year, I, I know I saw once when he played uh, against Xiao Ming, he did a decent job defending him, you know, as decent as he could be expected to be. The thing with Blatch is that I'm just not – I'm still not confident in his ability to be consistent Plus, the, the turnovers and fouls are a concern. I mean, I didn't watch the Bulls game the other night, but I was kind of following, like, some things Michael Lee was saying on Twitter and following the the box score. But I almost expected him to get uh, an Andre Blatt's triple-double, which would be double figures in points, rebounds, and then uh, fouls plus turnovers in double figures. So, I mean... Oh, that's cheating. I'm, Come on. That's cheating. Okay, but I'm kind of with, I see, uh, I see with what Rashad is saying, like maybe he, and what Coach Saunders is saying, like maybe he just needs to get to that role, coming off the bench, getting that mindset, and that'll best serve him in the long run. I agree with that in the sense that, you know, Saunders has talked a lot about the young players, they need to be handed a little bit of responsibility and then a little bit more responsibility and then a little bit more. We don't want to get them too ahead of, like ahead of themselves. And I get that he, he commits a lot of fouls as well. But one thing I'm concerned about, at least with an Alberto Haywood front line for too long, is, I mean, everybody's just going to pack, you know, just let those guys shoot. You know, they, they're going to all pack the lane, and, you know, our guards are not going to have enough driving room to, or, you know, they're going to double-team off Alberto, and Alberto can't really make him pay unless he makes a hard cut to the basket and there's good spacing. I'm concerned, yes, that Bletch shoots a lot, to put it, you know, one way, and that, you know, those shots should go to someone else. But one concern I do have over starting Alberto is, well, besides the fact that he, you don't want him to play too many minutes early on, is, well, our offense is going to be so in such trouble because nobody, neither Alberto or Haywood can space the floor well. And in today's NBA, that seems like it's a real problem. That's actually what I think Jameson makes Jameson so valuable. So we didn't see that being too much of a problem in preseason. I'm a little concerned it might be a problem in the regular season. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm a little concerned at the scoring as well. And the habits that will be picked up while Anton is out, are they going to carry over once he comes back? Um, that's why, you know, we were talking earlier, Mike, I'm, I'm very interested to see who the starting shooting guard is going to be because that's going to play into this as well. If he decides to go with Deshaun, you really have – an offensively challenged lineup out there, and you're putting a lot of pressure on Gilbert, a little too much, in my opinion, this early in the year, mm-hmm. and Karan, whereas if you go with a Mike Miller or, to a lesser degree, Randy Foy, but a Nick Young, you're not worrying about the scoring so much. I mean, you may be worrying about the types of shots that Nick Young puts up or you know, whether Mike Miller is hot, but there's just less of a concern about maybe an Alberto being in a lineup if you have a stronger backcourt player in the lineup. So I'm very interested to see what Flip is going to do, you know, in the backcourt to counteract his lack of depth now in the frontcourt. Um, unfortunately, he didn't reveal anything at practice today, so we don't know. But that's that's going to be very important, uh, particularly against Dallas, because, you know, they were at full strength, at least for a little while, against Dallas, and they hung in there. But they just don't have that same lineup, and Dallas is going to run and if you don't have players in there who can score, particularly if Alberto and Deshaun are in the lineup, it can get ugly very quickly. Mm-hmm. Now Dallas is going to miss Howard. Josh Howard's out. You know he's not going to play. He's out for a while. I believe they're going to start Quinn Ross and Drew and Dampier. 
So, but yeah, again, the, the, yeah, the point, the point still stands. And it's it, one other argument you can make is that you, you can get away with starting a more offensively challenged or defensively challenged player at the two. Even Foy, maybe this makes sense. I mean, he hasn't run much with the as a two, but maybe it makes some sense to play Foy because you can stick him on like Quinton Ross where it's not going to be a big problem defensively. And you have your two best interior defenders in Hay Owen and Oberto to back up any penetration. You know, it's your best, it's your best interior defense lineup. So your perimeter defense, you can, you can get away with a, less, a lesser defender, I think. Well, and one thing you have to remember about Oberto on the offensive end, I mean, he's just not, he's not just some stiff who's just going to rebound and try to play defense. I mean, the guy can pass, too. So that that does open up some other angles on offense that you know you might not be crediting him for, and and also hey, Brendan Haywood has been working with the uh, the hoops whisperer this summer on that mid range shot, and you know he sat down in training camp and uh, and Flip Saunders' offense, the uh, the mid range shot is there for the big man. So I might have some faith that he can that he can hit that, and so maybe the the paint won't be as crowded as. We think it might be with a, an Alberto Haywood uh, front court starting at the beginning of the season. Well, my concern then is that Haywood's such a good offensive rebounder that you're taking him away from the basket, um, especially against Dallas. is a very good def- uh, offensive rebounding team, but not a very good defensive rebounding team. So it's okay. an interesting if issue, Dallas, though. If Dallas starts through good, and please do that, because Haywood ate his lunch in that preseason game That's we saw. True. Yes, didn't have a chance against him, and so I will take that in a second. Yeah, I did get an email from Mike Fisher from uh, DallasBasketball.com who told me they're starting Dan Pierre. So I don't know about that, but, uh, you know, let me ask you guys all this. Um, we haven't seen Randy Ford run much, too. Uh, we've mostly seen Young, Miller, or Stevenson. But might it make sense to – you know, because Mil- cause one thing I've noticed is that when Miller plays with the starters, he plays, I mean, especially against the Bulls, he was just awful. He just was so passive. He wasn't looking for a shot. When you put him in there with guys that aren't as skilled offensively, it forces him to do something. So, And, and one of the problems with Randy Foy is that he does too much, I think. So, what, I mean, I know he hasn't run much with the, with the sh- as a shooting guard, but might it make sense to play Foy along with Arenas and start him? And then maybe, you know, give Mike James a little bit more playing time than he normally would. And then that way you have Miller and Blatch on the second unit, and Miller is empowered. I don't know. What do you guys think of that? Is, is that a little too loud of left field? No, I, I wasn't impressed with what Foy did this preseason enough to put him in the starting lineup. I almost think that you shouldn't reward him for his play. I didn't – he took a lot of bad shots, um, a lot of turnovers, and I just – I don't see him and Gil playing well together, uh, whereas – Somebody like Mike Miller, you know, even if he just stands in the corner, we might play a little better with him. But, you know, I watched Randy Ford several times, and he'd have flashes of just excellent play. He'd find the right man. He would kick it to the hole. But then he would have other plays where he just looked extremely hesitant. And I don't know that, like I said before, that you want to put him in the starting lineup. I think I would go with a Mike Miller way before I went with Foy. Yeah, um, you know, and I'm not going to take a lot from that Chicago game. Both Miller and Arenas were coming off the flu. I mean, if you look at how Miller played against Cleveland after Jameson went out with the injury, I mean, he played pretty damn well, and he was playing with Arenas, he was playing with Butler, 
And another thing, I'm kind of taken aback. Uh, Mike, did you just advocate playing Mike James some? I'm a little surprised. <laughs> I was gonna well, only, 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 only Foy doesn't play not that much. Yeah, I would I say, I would say, Mike James gets like, I don't know, if you give him like six minutes of being between the first and second quarters, and then just sit him on the bench the rest of the game. And you know what, Mike James is the type of guy he'll he'll do what. I mean, he seems like a good guy. I'm sure he would want to play more than six minutes, but you know, I think he has more of a chance to contribute in that six minutes than your average guy who's like, oh, I, you know, I'm coming off the bench. I'm, you know, it's cold. I'm not going to be able to do things. He's a veteran. He knows a little bit better. But back to uh, Rashad's point, I, I agree with him. It's like I think Foy, you know, will need him to develop as that backup point guard. So going with Miller or, you know, Stevenson, I don't know if he's a factor with the, you know, the, offensive game at this point with Jamison out, but going with one of those two might be the option. So is it a foregone conclusion that Nick Young is not really going to be a candidate to start, that he's better served coming off the bench? Because I know I know it's raw focusing more on Miller and Stevenson to a lesser degree Foy, but none of us is really making that leap to want to put Nick Young in the starting lineup. Is that a function of he's too unpredictable or we just think that he's better served coming off the bench and providing some scoring punch? He didn't have a very good preseason. I was kind of disappointed in it, too. You know, he, his shot was really off. And, you know, he certainly is trying harder on defense. But, you know, he's still really struggling with his technique, going through screens. And, you know, he's still – I think he had, like, four assists all of, pre, all of, all of preseason. I remember reading, I was reading Dwyer today, and he had a, he had a preseason stat with that included Young having, like, no assists. He just – I'm not going to say he misses opportunity, but it definitely feels like he misses opportunity based on the way he played this preseason. And I even and I just don't see any room for him. Um, going back to Foy, though, you guys don't think that on some level, I mean, so you guys are not ready to pump the Randy Foy point guard experiment because, you know, again, judging from what he's done his entire career, I, mean, I remember writing a long thing about this this summer. He's great at coming off screens and catching and shooting, but when he's asked to create, he's pretty terrible, and that's kind of what causes his low percentage. I mean, he's, his low true shooting percentages and stuff like that. I'm kind of ready to punt the Randy Ford point guard for extended period, uh, exclusively a point guard, you know, experiment, and get him in a position where he's not, he doesn't have the ball as much. And if he plays with Arenas, Arenas has the ball all the time. That's my logic, at least. What other choice do we have, you know? I mean... Uh, I'm just not sure who else is going to play the backup point and satisfy everyone. Well, you can play him. You can play him at backup point. You can, but I would say start him at the two so that his minutes split is more t- heavily leaning towards shooting guard than currently is. Right now, he's basically only playing point guard when he yeah. can do both. So if you start him, then you can kind of sit him for a few minutes and put Mike James in, and then he can take Mike James out and take Go out, and then Foy can go back to being a backup point in the second quarter. I guess um, it gets to a question of how – are Gilbert Arenas' minutes going to be monitored as much at the beginning of the season? So will there be more kind of a minutes at the point guard available that need to be filled? I mean, that's something we really haven't been able to get a bearing on from Flip Saunders. He's been a little bit coy in that regard. Yeah, that's interesting. What do you what do you guys think? I mean, what's an optimal number of minutes for arena space in this preseason? I I think you have to go with the flow of the game. I mean, you can say we want him playing 30 minutes a game, and then if it consistently looks like there are close games at the end, I mean, 
I don't, none of us claim to know Gil, but there's no way he's just going to be able to sit idly by on the bench in a close game when arguably the second best player on the team is out with a hurt shoulder. Um, so I, I don't, I don't see us being able to nab any certain amount of minutes that he's going to play. But ideally for me, he would play 30 minutes, um, kind of towards the end of the first quarter, midway through the second quarter, kind of rest him and play whatever combination we come up with, whether it's Foy or James, and then you know, in the third quarter, kind of see how the game is going, and then he has to play all of the fourth quarter. I mean, I just, you know, as as careful as Flip will want to be, and maybe even Gilbert, I just don't see his ego allowing him to be on the bench and to monitor his minutes when Jameson is out. Now, if Jameson was here, it'd be different. You could have stretches where Jameson and Butler are on the floor and Arenas is on the bench, but I think Jameson being out totally changes things. And, they're going to be living on the wild, on the risky side with his minutes. Yeah, I'm thinking in the the 35 minute territory to start for the first two games. I mean, uh, you know, last year in two games he averaged 31.5 minutes, and then in the 13 games he played in 07-08, 37.2. But before that, he's in the the 40 42 minute range. So yeah, just keep him monitored for the first eight 10 games, and if he responds well, you can increase it, but. You know, we'll see. It's interesting because Flip's Detroit teams, they got to a point where nobody was playing more than, like, 34 minutes a game. Sorry, I could be wrong about that, but that's what I I remember. This this leads us to another interesting question, which is, with Gilbert, is it more important that he play more to get back into a rhythm or play less to save him? So uh, it's not – we're not back in 2008 when – at the beginning of the season, Gilbert's playing 40 minutes a game when he's clearly limping, and that caused another injury. You know, what do you? I mean, I'm wondering what is more important. Given what I saw in preseason, I think it's more important to get him to a, a consistent rhythm. Um, it does nobody any good to see a brilliant third quarter and then a passive first and second quarter. Um, it just, I mean, even Flip himself said that he's looking for Gilbert to strike a balance, and I'd much rather get him to a rhythm at some point despite the fact that he's missed a lot of the last two seasons, you have to trust his off-season workout program, and he has to trust that knee, and he has to go hard, even if, like I, like Kyle said, maybe just for 35 minutes. But his lack of a rhythm affects other members of the team, and I hate to harp on this, but, again, with Jamison now, it's, it's more important to have Gilbert as good as he can be right now. And if you're saving him and you're, you know, accruing losses in the – at the same time, it's just it's not it's not a good situation. So I think it's more important for him to establish a rhythm early on. And he's done. We've seen him do it for flashes. It just needs to be done for an extended period of time. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be. I hate to answer like like this this way, but it's got to be both. I mean, because honestly, not even Gilbert knows how his knee is going to start to respond once you get into that you know that season where you're having back to back games or like you know, three- and five-night games. So, you know, we can only wait and see at this point. And hopefully he's brought along slow, but he progresses to the point where it's like, okay, we can really accelerate this guy's minutes, and he's going to be finding that balance. Yeah, no, I mean, it's definitely tough. Um, One thing that I think is very interesting about this conversation is that in a lot of ways you could say Gilbert is a microcosm of where the whole team is at right now. Flip Saunders is saying today that he doesn't think the team is where he wants them to be, and 
you know, in a rhythm-wise. She's not at the place where they want to be. And they, they had a decent preseason, but, I mean, Rashad, you talked to me about this. You're, is there a concern that maybe they're, they're trying to tinker with too much and now they don't really – they're going into the season where we don't really know what the rotation is, we don't know what the starting shooting guard is, compounded by Jameson being injured. I mean, that might cost them some regular season games trying to figure out what they're what – they, you know, what the rotation is and what they're getting themselves in a rhythm. I mean, and maybe during preseason there was, season there was too much time experimenting. I know you've talked to me about this. I'm curious to, to, for you to elaborate. Yeah, I'm I'm a little worried about that, and I think the last time we talked, I used the preseason football analogy, um, where most good coaches will have a plan where they do what Flip Saunders is doing with the Wizards during the first two preseason games, just kind of mix and match and see who's good, who's not, what they can do. But by that third game, they know exactly what they want to do to the extent that they often play the starters three quarters, they won the plays that they're really going to run and they establish rotation. In that fourth game, they'll do the same thing for the first quarter, then they'll pull everybody out. And the sense is, okay, now we know what we're going to do. We're ready for the season. I, didn't, I don't have a sense that Flip Saunders knows what he's going to do. And I don't, you can't blame it all on injuries. Even if everybody was healthy, you don't know what he's going to do. Even as of today, you don't know who the starting shooting guard is going to be. And I just think that he was a little too diplomatic in letting everybody, you know, work on their game, figure out who's going to be the starting shooting guard. You have to have that thing established before the preseason is over so everybody knows what the role is. Even with injuries, you know what the role is. And that hasn't happened. And, you know, I'd like for my head coach to know exactly who he's going to start the day before and say it with confidence. This, you know, it's a game-time decision. It doesn't. I don't know how the players feel about it, and maybe it's an internal thing and they know and we don't, but it just doesn't bode well for tomorrow when they go out on that floor. Does Flip know exactly what he wants to do, or is he doing it on the fly? Kyle, you share this concern at all? You know, uh, at first today when I saw Flip's quote, which is, uh, you know, we're not as far as long as we'd like to be, and we're probably right between where we might be and where we thought we might be, I was like, it, that's just a cryptic quote to me. I was kind of disappointed. We had some disappointed preseason outings in Atlanta and Chicago. I'm like, you know, what? how are we starting the season on this note? But the more I think about it, the more I'm okay with it. Yes, this, this first kind of dozen games of the regular season, it's going to be a learning experiment. You know, we have so many new guys, a new coach, and so we, we need to kind of calm our expectations a little bit. Maybe we go – you know, five and five, six and six in those first 10, 12 games. And, but as long as the team starts to show progress during the season and, you know, gets to gel, you know, when we get into the meat of the season, that, that tough march that we have, if they're showing progress, that's really all that matters. Um, so, unfortunately, we don't – I guess my point is we don't really have a choice but to use this first set of games as a, as a barometer to how this team comes together. Yeah, I think yeah, I, I'm, a little bit only – I'm sorry, Mike, to interrupt you. No, go I ahead. I don't mind if they start 5-5 five and five with a consistent lineup. I don't mind that because then you can say this lineup just needs to get better. I have a problem starting 5-5 five and five when there's one starting lineup, tried it out, and then the next day it looks a little differently, and then maybe Mike James plays 20 minutes one day and then he doesn't play. You know, I worry about that. That's what happened last year with – 
Antonio Daniels and Juan Dixon. There was a lot of that going on, and it just no one feels comfortable. No one knows what they're going to do. A lot of the players would say off the record, you know, I don't know, you have to ask coach. That I would worry about that. Um, and so that's that's my only concern. And maybe I'm, I have the sky's falling mentality. I shouldn't be that antagonistic. But I just I worry a little bit about the lack of consistency going into the season with this team, uh, given that most of this team was around last year when there was just no consistency. I would be more concerned if we weren't talking about Flip Saunders, a coach who has historically played too rigid a rotation rather than too, like, all over the place. Um, you know, traditionally his teams he's been criticized for not getting enough people involved and sticking with the same group through thick and thin. That's actually been a criticism of his. So I think that it is actually pretty clear who our top, the team's top nine is. Maybe Flip hasn't said, okay, X person is going to start. But Flip is, I mean, Flip is not, you know, silly enough to throw in a, different, a bunch of different shooting guards based on matchups. I mean, he said himself, once he picks a guy, that's going to be the guy to start at shooting guard. So I, I agree that with Eddie Jordan, this was a huge problem. And with, you know, not even just last year. I mean, there would be some games where, you know, it's Haywood's minutes. I mean, they're all over the place all throughout Eddie Jordan's career. But with Flip Saunders, I think he's pretty good at kind of regimenting a solid rotation. Um, and maybe we don't know yet because he has been pretty coy about it. But I think in his mind, Flip Saunders knows who the top guys on the team are going to be. That's my feeling, at least. I, I'd be If it was a different coach, obviously, they'd just be thrown out the window. But I think with Flip, he knows what he's doing. And I think a lot of it is just for show to try to keep the competition up. No, I agree. You make a good point, Mike. Anyway, guys, Rashad, thank you so much for coming on. It was a great talk. Uh, guys, you can check out Rashad's post at hoopsaddict.com. Uh, is there like a sub URL within that that you're supposed to go to? Nope, you can just go there and do a search, and I'm, I'm on there, hopefully on the front page. <laughs> so, yeah, Rashad, thanks so much for coming on. Oh, no problem. Yeah, I want to say thank you, Rashad. I mean, as uh, Mike said, this is our inaugural dagger report so we're going to be hopefully doing this on a weekly basis so uh thank you to all people who listen out there and we will actually have some more segments coming up one featuring mark riggs of bullets forever and he's going to come on to talk about the hawk offense and what it means uh, the differences between eddie jordan flip saunders and all types of plays that he's been breaking down lately and then we're also going to, just a reminder, we're going to be joined by Rob Mahoney of the two-man game, uh, top Dallas Mavericks blog. Uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Dagger Report. Uh, we're proud to have on the line uh, Mark Riggs, a.k.a. Rook, 6980, who has studied the Hawk offense, which is Flip Saunders' pet offense, and his matchup zone defense probably more than any human should study it if you're not a basketball coach. And so we could think of nobody better to help explain this intricate, you know, thousand-page system to the general public. So, Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Yeah, welcome. And, so, Mark, have you, have you actually made your own iPod with the – 
the Hawk offense on it yet? With the Hawk, with the Hawk plays, no. I no, I don't have an iPod, an eye touch like uh, like the Bullets players or the Wizards players. No, I don't have my own eye touch. Uh, no, it's just on my right. laptop. So. <laughs> well, fine. We'll have you on anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, it's almost like we should, we should disqualify you for not having an eye touch. Yeah, really. it makes you like not not enough of a wizard. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Anyway, you know, so you you looked at this offense a little bit, um, a little bit. It's a bit of an understatement. But uh, what do you think are some of the biggest differences between it and Eddie Jordan's Princeton offense, which the Wizards have been running for you know it seems like years and years now. The the, the biggest difference is the number of screens in flip system. It's just you know every play has has a ton of screens and the Princeton offense. There's a lot of handoffs and not as many screens. Uh, I'm by no means an expert on the Princeton, but in the Princeton, the offensive movement is dictated by what the defense is is doing versus dictating what the defense does by moving. So um, that sounds a little confusing, but in the in the Princeton, you have a movement and cuts, but if your defender is overplaying the pass, you have the option to cut back door. The ball handler makes a pass, you may you get a layup. The defense does one thing, you make a decision to do a different thing, and it's a reactive offense. Flip's offense is all about getting somebody position in a position for an open shot. So somebody sets a pick, you use that pick to go back door, the ball handler makes a pass, and you get a layup. You force the defender to make a decision to switch or not. You do you do a a movement, you force the defense to decide what to do. And you force the defense to react to your action. It's a more a proactive offense. Uh, yeah. Both offenses are great. Uh, the Princeton is by nature a little harder to learn uh, because there's so much um, there's so much that you need to. If the defense does this, then you have to do that. So younger players take a longer time to learn it. Plus, I don't know about you guys, but I really started to that three man weave in the beginning is just a big waste of the <laughs> clock. You know. Yeah. So. <laughs> Anyway, well, um, every every movement in the in the Hawk or the um, Flip Saunders offense, every movement that's made, and there may be, you know, twenty movements in a particular play. Every single cut is an opportunity for a shot. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I mean, the Flip Saunders' playbook clearly is much larger than the Hawk offense. But in terms of what you've seen this preseason and what you know about the Hawk, who who kind of fits in well into the system? And then, on the other hand, what players might not fit in so well? Well, um, obviously, the, the biggest change is going to be for Gilbert Arenas. You know, he's uh, he's going to have the ball in his hands all the time now, uh, instead of just bringing the ball over the half-court line and then passing the ball off and just becoming another cutter. He's going to have the ball in his hands. Um, you know, there was, a, there was a big question in my mind coming into the preseason whether the Wizards' big men could could set good screens, uh, considering that you know picks and screens were not a big a big part of the Princeton offense that Eddie Jordan runs, not a huge right. part anyway. And and it seems like every time we tried to set a screen, we were setting a moving screen, and getting called. Uh, yeah. And and the, and those concerns and questions have been answered in the first few preseason games, well, this whole preseason and all during training camp, as we've watched Jamison and Blatch and Haywood. And especially for Mauricio Alberto, they've set very good screens, and and I haven't seen an illegal screen yet, um, and I haven't seen any poor execution yet from any of those 
those four players. And even some of the guards and Crown Butler have set some nice screens. I've been yeah. really impressed with uh, the, some of the guards coming off of those screens, especially Arenas. I can see him coming off of screens and just giving, giving a defense fits uh, with you know the, his ability to either drive to the basket, pull up for a jumper, or pass off. Especially looking forward to seeing him with the ball in his hands to start every play. He's going to have a huge year when it comes to assists, I think, in this offense. Karan Butler is another guy. Um, Boy, I tell you what, his his mid range game is just absolutely made for this offense. You know, this the one of the con- criticisms of this offense is that it's it's a mid range jump shooting offense. Well, that's Karan's that's Karan's game. So he should mm-hmm. have, he has that deadly mid range game. He should be able to um, you know get, have a really good year. Jamison, uh, I don't see any any change in his role. I don't I really don't see. I think he's still going to get his. His little flip shots down in the at the baseline. He's going to still get his three point shots. He's going to still get his runners. Um, I think that there's a couple of guys that that are going to do real well. Uh, Foy and Miller should blend right in. They're both excellent shooters, especially off screens, especially catch and shoot. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, and we've seen in the preseason uh, even Haywood and Blatch get good open looks from some of the Hawks sets that they've run. So those are some of the guys that I think are going to do real well. <clears throat> Oberto, by the way, is really impressed. This was, I don't know if you guys have watched him uh, set screens, the way he cuts, the way he gets himself open. Uh, oh, definitely. He stands out more than anyone on the team in terms of that. I mean, he just, he's just fundamental. He's been doing it for years. Yep, exactly. And Kyle had a very nice piece that everyone should read about Oberto that he just wrote. So rest rest, rest assured Kyle is noticing Oberto. For those who, uh, Mark, for those who, who are, you know, who have trouble following the offense, how, can you explain a little bit how might, how it starts and how it gets initiated so that, you know, for people to kind of figure it out when they're watching? Well, um, most of the time the hot cut is, is uh, it, it starts off in the same formation. Sometimes it's a, it's a little bit variant. Um, you can either, uh, you know, it can be mirrored one way or the other, right or left. But generally speaking, um, the uh, point guard brings the ball over the half court, and the and the shooting guard they're in tandem at the top of the key. The uh, power forwards is right around the foul line, stays right around the foul line, and the uh, small forward and the center are in a stack on on the on the baseline. And the power forward comes out and sets a screen at the top of the key for the shooting forward and and the, and the shooting uh, the small forward, excuse me. I'm sorry, the uh, shooting guard. And the shooting guard uses that screen and cuts to the baseline. That's called the hawk cut. And that's how most of the hawk plays are, are initiated that way. Now, from there, the point guard can either pass the ball to, to the shooting guard if he's, if he's open or if he has a mismatch on the baseline. The, the power forward can curl around and set a screen for the a back screen for the point guard to come back to the top of the key. And, and the rest of the offense sort of starts from there. That whole hot cut is what mm-hmm. starts it all. Yeah. Now, you talked about Gilbert. It's a very different offense. You said he's the guy who's going to have the biggest change. It seemed like in the Princeton he was kind of doing two things at once. He was asked to facilitate, but he was also asked to score a lot. And, of course, he broke a lot of plays. Do you think this is going to be a tough adjustment for him to – you know, have the ball in his hands all the time, be trusted to make the right decision on every play and, you know, to really run the offense on every play. I mean, he broke a lot of plays on the Princeton. I think Do you think this is going to be a tough adjustment? 
I think you're right. In the Princeton, he was asked to bring the ball over the court and then give up the ball. When he got the ball back, he felt like he had to shoot. I actually think he'll be better in this offense. I think he'll be a better facilitator in this offense. I think he will break fewer plays. Uh, He's going to have the ball in his hands all the time, which means he doesn't have to shoot it every time down the floor. He'll be able to assess the defense, you know, take what's there, give up the ball to the guy who's open, um, you know, or attack the basket if he feels like he's got a mismatch. I mean, I really do think that in in the first iteration of Gilbert Arenas that we saw in the Princeton, I really felt like he once he got the ball, he thought he had to shoot it. You know, mm-hmm. um, when he gave up the ball after after he got through the half court and became a cutter, once he got it back, I feel like he 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 felt like he had to shoot the ball. In this offense, right. he doesn't have to give up the ball, so he doesn't have to shoot it every time. Uh, and yeah. I think you've seen that in this preseason, in the fact that he's not shooting the ball every play. He's not, you know, he's not taking over and breaking plays. So I think that we're going to see a different Gilbert Arenas in, in this uh, in this year. I absolutely agree with that. You know, it does seem like it totally seems like they're running the offense a lot more than they ran the Princeton. That's for sure. Oh, definitely. It might might be preseason, but you know, I. I haven't seen them break too many plays. I mean, Nick Young's broken a few, and I'm sure Gilbert's just risen to the basket, but they, they seem to be by and large running the system. Yes. Yeah. Mark, um, in terms of the front court, I mean, we've heard that mid-range jumpers are available for big men and Flip Saunders' offense, and that's, that's all fine for Jameson and Blatch. Maybe not so much for Haywood and – you know, McGee and Alberto, although although McGee does think he's a mid-range jump shooter and even longer. <laughs> um, but what uh, what things have you seen that try to get um, shots closer to the basket? Because I know even even Mike has talked about, you know, is, is Blotch more effective being able to shoot or can he play closer to the basket? What things in the offense do you see that's trying to get the big men touches near the rim? Well, we, we talked earlier about, you know the screens, the screening action of these offense, and and um, obviously you can you can come down the court and post the, the center up just in, in this offense just as as easily as you can in any other offense. Pass the ball into him, let him make a move. But what I like about Flip's offense is you don't have to just come down and throw the ball in to the center. You can yeah. actually have the small forward come over and set a screen for him and get him open deeper in the baseline. You can cut, have the guards. Do cuts and then put and then stop and put a screen on his own man. Uh, so the screening action I think is going to help, um, especially Alberto. I mean the the guy is just uh, incredible the way he uh, plays on the court in this offense. The way he cuts at the exact precise moment to get open. And and I yeah. think Haywood, being a real smart player, is going to learn from Alberto and see that. And he's going to end up with an awful lot of dunks and layups off of uh, screen plays down low. I don't How, know about dunks so much, but yeah, maybe layups. Haywood will get dunks. Alberto <laughs> maybe not. Alberto, yeah. he, he's crafty with the layups, but dunks. We'll, we'll see about that. <laughs> I'm curious who you guys think is a more uh, more of a you know below the rim game, whether it's between Alberto and Darius Sangaila. Uh I don't know. It's a tough call. I, I tell you this. Um, I think they're both. I don't think either one of them could jump over a phone book, but <laughs> Alberto's taller, so he's, he plays closer to the rim than Sangahara did. Put it that yeah, way. Yeah, that's, 
This is true. How, Mark, how long do you think it will take for these guys to really pick up this offense? And you know, how far along do you think they really are at this point? I don't think they really scratched the surface. I think they have the basic plays uh, down. Um, we've seen, um, especially in the last few games, I've seen a lot of hot cuts being run. Um, it seems to me like especially, I mean, the first play of the game in the last three games has been the hot cut. If you go back and look at the, your DVDs, look at the very first play. It's always been a hot cut. Uh, the last game, unfortunately, was a turnover, but it was it was a hot cut anyway. <laughs> um, they're they're running the the offense um, like like you said a lot more than they did under Princeton. They're actually running plays. The more often that they do it, the, obviously they're better. They're going to get at it. The execution will get better, and they'll be able to put it in. And Flip will be able to then uh, put in variations, uh, options. That type of thing. Right now, I'm, I'm sure he's just got the basic plays in. He doesn't have the counters and the options. You know, as as a, as a defense becomes used to you running a play a certain way, there's options mm-hmm. you can run that can they can run it a little bit differently, and you can get your people open or counters to what the defense does. So, as we go through the season, I think probably 20, maybe 20 games into the season, you ought to see this offense really starting to hum. Um, I think by that time, everybody, will, especially Jamison, will be back in. They'll have time to get him back into the into the groove. And with with 20 games in, I think you're going to see this offense really, really start to become a real efficient offense. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any concern on that? I mean, certainly every coach doesn't isn't dogmatic with their system. They sprinkle some stuff in from past systems that work to kind of get the most out of the team, but it seems like Flip is really trying to push this this system on the Wizards, and for, certainly for good reason, but how sensitive do you think Flip should be to kind of maybe pulling over some plays from other places that to give this these guys maybe some Princeton plays, you know, maybe some Princeton cuts that are, you know, can give these players an air of familiarity as we learn a new system? Like I said before, I think we we haven't seen the whole of his playbook yet. I mean, you know, we may we may only see the first twenty or twenty five percent of it, um, you know, in the first part of this year. As we go along, he's got a lot of motion stuff. He's got a lot of the Princeton plays. He's in his playbook. He's got a lot more than just the hawk set. Uh, mm-hmm. And we've seen some of it this this preseason. We've you know they're not running the hawk set every play. They're running right. other kinds of plays. They're running. Uh, down screens are running. Uh, I even saw something that looks similar to the triangle. Uh, so yeah, right. we've seen some things in here that are different from the Hawk. Um, I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to pick and choose what things he feels are going to fit his players in this in this system this year. Pick those plays, and that's what he's concentrated on in preseason to get them down. I, I don't think we've seen the whole of his playbook yet. And I don't think we'll see the whole of it until probably next year, or maybe you know, maybe the end of next year. Uh, same with the defense; we haven't seen them play much um, zone defense this year, um, matchup zone, which he, which Flip is famous for. But I don't think you can throw all that stuff at these guys and, and expect them to be, you know, and expect them to get it all all at once. Um, right. It is a much simpler offense. It really is much simpler than the than the Princeton. But but yeah. let's face it; you can't you can't take you know, 900 plays and try and fit them all into, you know, a right. couple of weeks of training camp. It just won't work. Right. So we, yeah, haven't uh, seen, we haven't seen the totality of his, of his playbook yet. Because after practice one day, Haywood was even saying, you know, some of the play calls that they run in practice are plays that they ran last year, but now 
or similar plays, but now they just need to figure out, you know, when they're supposed to screen and roll here or when they're supposed to pin down screen. So, I mean, I think you're, you're definitely right, Mark. As the season develops, we're going to get to see how diverse Flip Saunders' offense is. And, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to be impressed. I'm hoping I'm impressed. Well, I've been impressed so far with the limited amount we've seen so far. Uh, the offense has there's been there's not been a game yet where I've where I've thought well with the exception of this last game when they only scored 70 points um, there hasn't been a game where I've thought boy they just are not executing offensively you know it, every game it seemed like they were able to get shots they were able to get open shots they had very few stretches where they had uh, long stretches of not being able to score the ball or not being able to get open shots there's there were stretches when they couldn't score but it wasn't because they weren't open okay they were getting open shots and missing them. Um, so there's been, there's been a, I think that the offense is in, I think it's relatively efficient. I think it's going to be much more efficient as we get into the, into the season. And, mm-hmm. uh, and as we, as, as they have more practice time, he's going to, he's going to do counters and options and more plays. We'll see a lot more of this offense. I know uh, you haven't studied uh, the, the defense much. Sorry to cut you off, Kyle, but I know you haven't studied the defense as much, and I, I know they haven't run a lot of matchup zone out there, which I think is great. I think they need a set philosophy, you know, that they can execute before they try a zillion different defenses just to confuse them. But what do you, how much do you think – can Flint improve this team's defense just, you know, over the guys that have come before him? Do you think – how much can he do it? Well, I don't – you know, we, we've seen – you know what happened to them last year and the year before. They they are a terrible, terrible defensive team, and especially defending the three point shot. Um, they've they've been either worst or second, you know, almost worst in defending the three point shot a couple of years in a row now. Um, I've seen some some very encouraging signs. Obviously, this year in preseason, uh, they were sh- they were holding uh, their opponents to I think forty six percent shooting and. Thirty-nine percent or thirty-three percent in threes, something like That's that. That's good. Up until recently, thirty-nine percent is bad. Thirty-three percent is good. Yeah, and um, and and his his um, his goals are uh, I think forty-six and uh, thirty-two, so they were very close to the goals that he set in preseason. Uh, I think that there's a marked difference in defensive philosophies between what uh, Flip has and what. Eddie Jordan does. If if Eddie Jordan had a defensive philosophy, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I don't see five guys in the paint like we used to see with Eddie Jordan. Okay, we heard the mantra "protect the paint, protect the paint, protect the paint" for the last five years, and they 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 would have five guys in the lane collapse, and then there would be a guy sitting out at the three point line wide open. We haven't seen that five guys in the paint defense uh, since Flips got here, and I think that's made a tremendous defense in being able to in being able to get back out to the shooters. You know, now we're still we're still seeing some penetration. We're still seeing some you know some penetration either by the dribble or the, by the pass in, but we're not seeing as many wide open threes, and I think that's a really basic uh, defensive turnaround. And when it comes down to defense, I, you know, honestly, it's all about focus and staying consistently focused. I mean, we've seen some kind of things they've done in the preseason. You're like, you know, a high school team should know, you know, to communicate in transition D or, you know, and not gamble so much in the passing lane. So, I mean, I think it'll develop once once the flip's not throwing too many things at, at them and they can kind of concentrate anymore. 
a little bit more. I mean, like uh, I was talking about Bertha, like you said, um, the Wizards held the, the 76ers who, you know, they like to get up and down the court. They were held to 17 points in that first quarter. And Alberto said, yeah, you know, we're going to score. It's just a matter of working hard to keep the other team from scoring. I mean, if they can concentrate on that, the the points will come easy. Yeah, and so, some of it is going to be reversing bad habits, too. Um, here's here's what here's what Flip says about defense. Here's his tenants, basic tenets of of his defensive philosophy. Never leave the dribbler. Deny all dribble penetration and passing into the paint. Switch on all cutters. Contest every perimeter, perimeter shot. Give up no second shots. Give up no layups. And encourage the ball to the corners and the top of the key, not the wings. He yeah. calls the he calls the top of the key a winding country road to the basket. Sort of makes sense. You know, there's there's five <laughs> players between you and the basket. I mean, it's you right. wind all around. The corners, or he calls them a bumpy one-lane dirt road with no shoulder. Okay, you got two guys down there on the on the on the uh, on the baseline. If you're in the corner, you got to get to the rim. There's no shoulder there. You can't go out of bounds. So you know, that makes sense. But the wing, <laughs> he calls it a four-lane highway directly to the rim. You go from the wing, it's like he says you got to get them away from the wing. The other thing he he brings up is opponents shoot about 11 to 13 percent lower percent on contested shots than non-contested shots. Well, sure, sure that makes sense. Okay, everybody's probably knew that in the back of their head that contested shots are harder. In order to contest shots, you you have to be in a position, which means yeah. One of his other tendencies: do not deny any non-penetrating pass. If they're just passing the ball around the uh, perimeter, don't go for the steal. Don't deny it. Let them pass the ball. All it is is waste of time. They want yeah. to pass the ball out of the post back out. Don't deny that. Why deny it? It's just going to waste two more seconds off the shot clock. Okay. Mm-hmm. In other words, don't go for steals when the offense is passing the ball around. If they're trying to pass, if they're trying to penetrate. With a pass, yes, deny that pass, but don't yeah. penetrate non non penetrating passes. So um, right now we're seeing too much. Karan uh, Butler still trying to deny wing passes, for instance. Okay, uh, passing yeah. around the, around the perimeter, he's still going for the steals. We're seeing Andre Blatch do the same thing. A lot of a lot of the players have to break those old habits, and sometimes you got to break that player down and then build them back up again before you can get get that. Uh, that defensive philosophy, you really, really ground into them. That was very yeah, characteristic. I, and so, I mean, I, I guess if with all those comparison of roads, if they have Google Maps and those eye touches, we're going to be we're going to be those states. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, no. A- absolutely. Yeah. I. I, I definitely. Oh, it sounds like interesting philosophy. Uh, I definitely. Uh, whatever. Whatever is happening with the defense this preseason, the two things I I like are that. You know, one, I think they've really improved their rebounding. I don't know, we haven't talked a lot about that, but I think that's really been improved over the course of the preseason. And the other thing I like is they're not doing too much of this gimmick stuff. Like, you know, Eddie Jordan used to have, like, five different zones and, like, three yeah. different zone traps. And, and, like, I mean, against with a really smart team and, and a really disruptive athletic team, like, even, like, hey, the Sixers, for example, I think would be good for Eddie's kind of, you know, you know, like wreck havoc defense. The Wizards just need something that's simple that they can execute, that they you know will stick to, and then they just keep repeating it, and then they finally pick up the good habits. So I like that exactly. the most about Swift stuff. But uh, let's you know, hey, yeah, go ahead, Sorry. go ahead, let's go ahead, Mark. We're ahead of ourselves, though. You know, this is never going to be an elite defensive team. 
Um, no. At least not this year. Okay, we're, we're not we're not talking about going from you know one of the worst defensive teams to one of the best. But if they can get up near the middle of the pack, just by you know uh, you know by it's 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 really easy to say never leave the dribble, deny all penetration, you know, switch on all cutters, contest every perimeter shot. You know they're not going to contest every perimeter shot. It's just not possible. That, <laughs> right. That's his philosophy. Okay, that's his philosophy. Can the players execute? Okay, well, it's much easier to say that, that they want to do this. It's much harder to actually execute it. Right, of course. Yeah. Um, you have to have the players to execute those things. I don't think they've got the, the defensive players yet. They've got. I think they're starting to get the defensive mindset. I think we saw that, especially in the Philadelphia game. I thought they played excellent defense. They played excellent defense all preseason, um, even though sometimes they gave up over 100 points, the shooting percentages were down, which was an important part. Right, so, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, they're, they're uh, certainly going to improve. Uh, I don't think they're going to vault to the top of the league, but if they can get to even 20th, I think that's a good improvement. And, Mark, we know you we know you possess that Flip Saunders zone defense, zone matchup defense DVD, so uh, we're definitely going to have you on in the future to discuss how the team's been coming along in that aspect. But, um, I think sorry, it's going to make my brain spin around. It's I watched the first chapter of it. I I gotta go through it again four or five times. I didn't and do always do. Well, sir, thanks a lot for coming on and uh, kind of educating us a little bit more on Flip Saunders and his in the Hawk offense aspect of his humongous playbook. Um, really appreciate that. Well, listen, gentlemen, thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Okay. Um, when we when we come back, we're we're going to yeah. talk to Rob Mahoney from uh, the Two Men Game, uh, Dallas Mavericks blog. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Dagger Report. All right, welcome back to the Dagger Report, the Bullets Forever slash TruthAboutIt.net podcast. Now, we welcome Rob Mahoney from the Two Man Game, a Dallas Mavericks blog and the ESPN Truth Network. Rob, welcome. Hey, guys. How's it going? Doing well. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, You know, the Wizards, of course, are playing the Mavericks tomorrow at uh, 8.30, uh, and I guess we should jump right in. Um, tell me, what, how good do you think this team's going to be? I mean, you know, sounds like they, they, a lot of team people are really high in the Mavericks. What do you think? Uh, I think there's good reason for that. I think there's there's a lot of talent there. There's a lot of versatility, both in, as far as the lineup and what they can do on the floor. And I think that I think Rick Carlisle is a great coach, and he's going to be able to put it all together with these Mavs. Um, I mean, they're not maybe the class of the West, but they're they're right there below the the Lakers and the Spurs in terms of the Western Conference hierarchy. Okay. What about um, obviously with the Mavs, as is the Wizards every year. Defense is a pretty big concern. Right now, you guys really have Eric Dampier as the only guy who can hold down the front court defense. You're thinking about starting Drew Gooden at times. Where, how are you guys going to improve in that area, or can you? I mean, the hope is that we kind of rely on the matchups that other teams bring to the Mavs. So when they have, you know, a big a big bruising center on the inside, you counter with Eric Dampier. And if not, 
then you go through Gooden for the extra scoring on the inside and the the little 15-foot jump shot. But honestly, I mean, the interior defense has never really been a Mavs strength. The the help side shot blocking is pretty bad. And even though Dirk and, and Eric Dampier and Drew Gooden are all good rebounders, you're I mean, you're not going to be that successful on the defensive end without the help side shot blocking. And that's why the quick guards and uh, quick players on the perimeter have been able to burn the Mavs in the past. Because when they get in the lane, there's no one there to stop them. And so I think the Mavs are they're actually pretty well equipped to deal with post threats, you know, the Dwight Howards, the Tim Duncans of the league. But I think where they're really going to have trouble is having a big man who can block shots of incoming perimeter players. Right. So how how bad, in your opinion, um, did losing out on Gortat set you guys back? It it hurts big time. I mean, it honestly, I think a lot of Mavs fans, I mean myself included, we are counting on you know having this kind of center in the middle for for years to come. And I mean, Martin Gortat, he's he's a great player, and I think he's still underrated by a lot of people, even despite his his success in the playoffs and last season especially because having Gortat in the lineup for the Mavs would allow them to trade Eric Dampier's contract during the course of this season. And that's kind right. of an – he would be a lot more expendable that way versus now he's pretty much locked into the Mavs' plans unless they can get someone really good back in a trade, which, I mean, it's not impossible given the, the specificities of his uh, kind of early expiring contract, if you will. But – I mean, missing out on Gortat is big, and especially when you compound that with also losing Brandon Bass to the Magic, and it was that was a right. rough patch in the summer for the Mavs. <laughs> so do you that, think there's any, do you think there's any way that Dallas can do something to counteract this problem? I mean, Gooden's contract is non is partially guaranteed up to a certain point. Is there any way they can move somebody to maybe get another big guy? See, that's that's really the problem, you know. Centers and power forwards have never really been in, in high supply in the NBA, especially the kind that the Mavs need. You know, they need someone who can help balance Dirk's game. They need a strong offensive rebounder. They need someone who can finish in the paint and, you know, take a few possessions offensively with some post moves. But, you know, with those limitations, you've basically got, you know, three or four guys in the league. They're all locked up long-term, and their teams love them. So more realistically, I think if the Mavs were to trade Dampier or Drew Gooden's contract, what they'd end up getting is probably another wing player, which is not necessarily what they need, but if it's a good enough player, it can make a difference. Well, with Howard, Josh Howard out for a couple of weeks, I mean, shooting guard position is open. I mean, they have Terry, but they like bringing him off the bench, you know. This is, getting another shooting guard seems like that's something this team has been trying to do for a while. That's, I mean, that's another one of those tough spots where what the Mavs need is, you know, they need Kobe Bryant at shooting guard. They need a tall, good <laughs> perimeter defender who can make shots from anywhere. That's what, I mean, that's what every team needs at shooting guard. <laughs> so, I mean, wh- what they have is they kind of have it by committee, where they have Jason Terry, who's, you know, he's a great shooter, and he's, he can also distribute the ball at the two. And then they have Josh Howard, who's also an adequate shooter, a slightly better defender, and he can slash a bit. And then they have Quinn Ross, who's, you know, a top-notch defender at the position, just, you know, can't make a bucket to save his life. And so if they could combine all three into one person, you know, we'd, it'd be money. But as is, I think they're going to have to make do with what they've got, unless, you know, Brandon Roy or Kobe Bryant suddenly become available this season. Yeah, I was thinking the Wizards could really use combining Randy Foy, Mike Miller, and Deshaun Stevenson to one person, but I don't know. I, mean, I think Dallas is – you're three people in one person. They would they would probably kick our three pers- people into one person. They'd kick their butts. So, you know, that's an yeah, interesting yeah. idea. We'll, we'll work on it. 
I don't know, combining smart Cuban and his, I don't know, he may have some sort of technology we don't know about. <laughs> I'm sure it's being developed in the locker room as we speak. Okay, well, <laughs> along with the uh, the stat to prove that the JCK trade was not a mistake. Oh, yeah, well, that's, that's top secret information. We can't talk about that. <laughs> well, um, speaking of diverse players, Sean Marion brings a lot to the Mavs. Well, hopefully, you guys hope he can because the guys, he just turned 31 this past May, and people are questioning if he has anything left in the tank. I mean, is, is he going to be a that contributor? He puts his Mavs over the top in the West? I don't know if he'll put him over the top, but he'll, he definitely puts him right in the thick of things. You know, with, with Marion, it's always been an issue of how comfortable he is with his teammates and how comfortable he is with the system. And in Phoenix, he had that, even though he was kind of whining a bit about touches here and there and whatnot. But compared to the situations in Toronto and Miami, you know, it's night and day, especially yeah. when you have that elite point guard giving you the ball on the fast break, giving you the ball when you make that backdoor cut to the basket. It's a lot different than, you know, having Jose Calderon trudging to get around a pick or when you have Dwayne Wade all like I don't want to see him monopolizing the ball but pretty much that's what he does in Miami's offense he's not always looking for the pass he's looking to score versus in Dallas you've got Jason Kidd who I mean even at his advanced age is one of the better passers in the league and he's willing to take those risks with players like Marion where he'll throw in the lot he'll hit him on the backdoor cut and so as long as Marion is as comfortable as indications would have us believe, you know, we have these pictures and we have these reports coming out of training camp and media day and the like, where, you know, he's a jokester with his teammates. You know, he's, he's, the locker room chemistry is supposedly great at this point, and that's the best thing that the fans of Sean Marion can hear because he, as long as he stays comfortable within the Mavericks system, he will find a lot of, a lot of success in Dallas. Okay. Where do you think he'll get most of his minutes? Do they get the small forward, power forward? I mean, where, where does he play? It's, I mean, it's going to be kind of a learning experience feeling out the rotation for the Mavs. I would bet that a lot of his minutes come at small forward, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't hesitate to shift that, you know, mid-season. As, as Rick Carlisle, I mean, Rick Carlisle is great at on-the-fly adjustments during the course of a season. If he sees that something isn't working, he will ditch it. I mean, just last season, the Mavs installed, like, a Princeton-style offense, and then, you know, 10 games into the season, he decided he doesn't want to do it anymore because it wasn't working. And so I think Sean Marion, you know, he's going to start games at the three, provided everyone's healthy, and then he might, even, he might finish games at the four in kind of a small ballish lineup that the Mavs could field with Jason Kidd, Jason Terry, Josh Howard, Sean Marion, and Dirk, which could be a very potent offensive lineup. But even though that he might finish games that way, I think he's going to end up playing a lot of his minutes at the three. Right. It's interesting um, you, you you say that because I, I I always seem like when Phoenix the, the the Suns coaches were always trying to tell him listen if he he wanted to be a, a three but they were trying to tell him listen if you're a four you become much more valuable player than when you are a three but then from the sounds of it it looks like you think he's going to play a lot of three at least to start the game I mean don't you worry that they may limit his effectiveness a little bit where he's not like kind of quicker than most fours and now he's just kind of more, a more ordinary player. I mean, that's what I'm a little concerned about if I were a Dallas fan. It's an understandable concern. And I mean, honestly, my prediction that he'll play more at the three, it's honestly probably split more down the middle than I'm having you believe. Cause mm-hmm. realistically the Mavs don't have that many options at the backup four. I mean, they don't right. need many minutes to fill because Dirk's going to play what 36 minutes a night anyway. But otherwise, I mean, it's pretty much coming down to Marion, maybe some minutes from Drew Gooden, the occasional fill-in by, you know, a Tim Thomas or something like that. 
But I'm Marion. Well, he will get some burn at the four, and I think I think he can still be effective at both positions. It's just a matter of can the Mavs put the weapons around him to relieve some of the offensive pressure, and is he quick and is he still quick enough to keep up with threes on the perimeter? Like as far as the defensive end, I mean that's the biggest question as far as the Mavs defensive scheme is: is Marion still quick enough to cover those guys? And I mean honestly, right now you have no way of knowing. It's just kind of a wait and see kind of thing. Tim Thomas, I mean, I, I'm playing Chris Humphreys before I play Tim Thomas's coach. Oh. I, I want to issue a formal apology to Chris Humphreys right now because that was a terrible, terrible oversight. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, Chris Humphreys, especially in the preseason, has been tremendous. I mean, he's yeah. almost at point and rebound a minute numbers. How, how much of it? That's kind of a surprise. I mean, everyone, was he underrated before or is he really just coming to his own in this preseason? The the pessimist in me is saying it's the preseason, and this is Chris Humphreys, and he's playing, you know, 30 minutes a night against some pretty inferior competition. But right. supposing he can actually play minutes, and, I mean, the biggest the biggest help for the Mavs would be if he could play minutes at the five. And supposing he can do that, he will be beloved by everyone in the Dallas Metroplex. I mean, this he was basically a throw-in in the, in the Sean Marion deal. He's considered one on our end. But... I mean, I honestly don't think he's even produced with flashes of this kind of production in his time in Toronto. He's always been considered kind of an underwhelming power forward, but now with the Mets, for some reason or another, he's thriving. And I, as far as whether or not that's the preseason or playing with a better team, I can't tell you at the moment. But, I mean, again, it's one of those things where once the regular season starts rolling, we have to see what kind of, kind of uh, rhythm Chris Humphreys can get into. Yeah. All right, let's let's go to the let's go to the game tomorrow. Um, yeah. What what do you think are going to be some of the key kind of matchups or kind of you know trends that will tip the game one way or the other? Well, first I have to ask who's who's starting at power forward for the Wizards with Jameson out. That's a that's a good question because Flip Saunders, you know, originally and we were talking earlier about how he said he's going to start Alberto to get Blatch used to his role of coming off the bench, but I can't imagine Alberto being able to keep up with, you know, with Dirk at all. You know, Blatch has a better chance against Nowitzki. What do you think, Mike? Well, you know, Alberto played some perimeter-oriented fours better, you know, like, or like Brand. He played Brand pretty well. He played, you know, a couple other guys pretty well. I, I remember him matching up a bit with Dirk, um, you know, maybe for this matchup it would make more sense to play Blatch, but you have to, I mean, especially with all the turnover that has happened with the Wizards this preseason and all the experimenting with lineups, it might make more sense to just throw Berto out there if you're going to throw him out there anyway while Jameson's out to start. Let Blatch come off the bench like he would normally, and don't worry about the terrible matchup that, you know, happens with Dirk. You know, it is just one game at 82. So yeah. I, I would guess that Alberto starts. Now, assuming Alberto starts, what do you think that, does to change the game. I mean, I think it's it, it could be brutal, but honestly, with with Dirk, it's one of those <laughs> matchups where you almost wanna you almost wanna throw a defender as fodder at him, because Dirk honestly against the Wizards, he's he's gonna score you know upwards of twenty five. He's he's gonna get his points, even, even with Jameson. It was brutal yeah. in the preseason, so. Absolutely, and you know the Mavs and Spurs have this kind of long and illustrious history together. And I, I've seen I've seen Oberto try to guard Dirk before, and it's it's not a pretty sight. He just he's slower than he used to be. 
I'm, I'm referring to Alberto. And, I mean, even when he was younger and a little bit quicker, he, he didn't really have a prayer. It's one of the reasons why Dallas gave San Antonio such a, like, a series of matchup problems in the playoffs in right. 2006. Because, I mean, really right. they had no one who could guard Dirk. And, you know, Francisco Alberto is part of, or, yeah, he's part of that mix. And right. so, I mean, honestly, with Dirk, I, I, don't, I don't question that logic. Because, I mean, even if you want to get Blatchett, you know, accustomed to his role off the bench, then it, it's probably no big deal because Dirk's going to score anyway. What they really need to focus on, as far as the Wizards, is probably trying to abuse the hell out of Jason Kidd at point guard. And, you know, part of that requires Gilbert Arenas giving up this preseason mentality of, oh, I'm going to be a leader, oh, I'm going to be a distributor, and just, you know, scoring the damn ball because he could walk past Jason Kidd every play if he wanted to. Yeah, it was kind of annoying how for a good stretch of that Dallas game where Kyle and I were both in attendance, you know, Arenas was really content to not do anything against Kidd. It was only in that third quarter when there was literally, you know, nobody else was doing anything that Arenas would finally step up and, you know, perform. Is there any chance, I know I, I know Quinn Ross is probably going to start tomorrow, I've heard. Is there any chance they put Ross on Arenas and then, have kid guard whoever the Wizards start shooting guard, whether it's Stevenson, Miller, or Foy? I wouldn't say it's impossible. You know, the Mavs, Rick Carlisle loves to play Jason Kidd on opposing two guards because it's, it's you know, more in line with his defensive strengths. You know, he's still a strong defender. He just can't really guard point guards anymore. And so, I mean, that's one of the reasons why him and Jason Terry seem to work pretty well in tandem together because even though, you know, Jason Terry's not a great defender either, but he's a little quicker. And so he can guard the point guards while Kidd guards the two guards. And so I, would, I wouldn't be surprised at all if Ricarla opted to put uh, Kidd on whoever starts at the two. But I think, I think he will start the game on Gilbert Arenas, and it's going to be one of those things where if he gets abused, I, wouldn't, I don't think Carlisle would think twice about putting Ross on him instead. Yeah, I mean, if Kidd's on Deshaun Stevenson, it's okay from you guys then. But if he... Kids on Mike Miller, man. I hope Mike Miller starts, you know, his, his mouth starts watering because he should just, he should be able to take Kid in the post all day or just shoot over him. Yeah, this I mean, is just so, This is so weird for me to hear, like, oh, whoever Jason Kidd is guarding, wow, they, have, they must be watering their lips. I mean, this is like former all-defensive team player. I mean, has it really fallen this hard? I mean, it, I, maybe he has. It's just crazy for me to hear this type of stuff. The guy was born in 1973, Mike. So that's, <laughs> that's a long time ago, even for me. <laughs> Maybe, but I don't know. I, it still seems like it's a it, you put him on opposing twos, and I think it's a pretty good matchup. So uh, I, I guess now, I mean, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Oh no, I was, I was just I I definitely agree with that. I think that I mean at the two, he's he's a pretty strong defender, and I mean even against some some uh, twos that can post up like Mike Miller. As long as, you know, the feet aren't too quick going against him, I think Jason Kidd's in a good spot. And, you know, most of the people at the two or even the three usually aren't, you know, Chris Paul, Tony Parker quick at penetrating into the lane, and that's where Jason Kidd gets real trouble. Otherwise, he's still an elite defender, even though a lot of people would have you think otherwise. Okay, okay. so now that, uh, now that we're done with that, um, do you have any predictions on what the score is going to be tomorrow? Um... I got no clue. I mean, I'm thinking it's going to be a high-scoring game. I mean, the Mavs are, you know, supposedly trying to run more this year, so I, I would figure that the pace is going to be pretty high. You know, I'm thinking low 100s, maybe, you know, since obviously I'm on this side of the line, I'm going to say Mavs 105, Wizards 97. 
Okay. Okay. All right, what do you got? Rob, I got a question for you. What, this is off the, the topic of the score, but who is yeah. public enemy number one for the Mavs? Public enemy number one for the Mavs. I mean, it's it's tricky because, you know, the Mavs and the Spurs have this, you know, rivalry. At least it's, it seems that way. They play each other so closely, and the games are just so fun to watch. But I think if the Mavs had the chance to play anyone in the playoffs, they'd pick the Spurs. Not only because, you know, they're this rival team, but also because I think that the matchups are there, and I think they're beatable. But then on the other hand, you have, you know, the big bad Lakers of the West, where, you know, they... <laughs> Everyone wants to beat the Lakers, no matter what. And so I think, I think at the end of the day, it'd probably be the Lakers, just because they're you know the best team in the West, or maybe even in the, uh, probably in the league. And so I think it's you know when you're trying to get to the finals, or, you know optimally with the projections for this team, I think that they have to be public enemy number one. Actually, you know both of those are the wrong answer. The public enemy number one is Otis Smith. He took Brandon back <laughs> and was so true. I mean, that, that is kind of low, if you think about it. Oh, what a jerk. <laughs> How dare he try to improve his team and, you know, pay know. the luxury tax. The nerve of some people. Doesn't he realize that this is the NBA needs more parity? Maybe. I guess he didn't get that memo. <laughs> I guess not. Anyway, uh, Kyle, what do you think, what do you think is going to happen tomorrow? Oh, man, it's hard because, you know, at least – both teams have injured guys, so, you know, Howard, Jameson, whatever. I, I think it's going to be a close matchup. Obviously, I'm going to pick the Wizards. I'm going to go to the Wizards in overtime, uh, 107-106. Okay, well, I'm going to be a pessimist. I'm going to say Dallas wins 109-97, and we all will whine about why the Wizards are not good when we forget that Dallas is actually pretty good and it's a road game. And so... Yeah, one on ninety-seven Dallas. I'll be the pessimist of the group. You're, you're too, not a pessimist. You're too much of a realist, Mike. I don't like that. Realist. <laughs> well, thanks. I appreciate that, and I appreciate Rob. Thanks so much for coming on the show. It was great to have you. Yeah, sure. We should yes, just Rob, really appreciate it. We'll definitely and, uh, uh, we'll, we'll probably have you back sometime in the future, maybe when uh, the Wizard or when you guys come up to DC to play. So thanks a lot for coming on. Yeah, sure. And I'm rooting for Dallas. The league is a more interesting league when Dallas is really good. I'll say that much. So good Thank luck you. to the Mavs this season. Why is thanks that? so much because for coming on. Mike, why Take is that? Because there's more, uh, there's more Mark Cuban crying on the sidelines. Is that why the Mavs are interesting? Well, that's interesting, yeah. I mean, doesn't that interest you? I mean, wasn't the whole Kenyon Martin-Mark Cuban feud, like, pretty funny, all in all? Yeah. I mean, I, I, thought, it was, I thought it was hilarious. It is. <laughs> It is. I'm not going to argue with you at all. <laughs> I mean, whether <laughs> whether it's like you know good for the league, I don't know, but it, it's certainly interesting. So you know, it, it, I think I think the league needs a good Dallas team. I'm I'm a little less I'm a little bearish in Dallas this year, but we'll see. I hope I'm wrong. All right. Well, thanks again for coming on, and uh, yeah, that pretty much concludes this week's episode of the Dagger Report. Hope you guys liked it. We'll be back next week. And until then, take care.